1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, God's incredible love. If you would, stand for reading God's word. We honor God by standing when we read his word. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, just as he is pure. This is the word of God. Please be seated. God's incredible love, God's amazing love, God's stupendous love for his children. The theme of 1 John, that you may know that you have eternal life. It's not equivocal. It's not a mystery. That you may know that you have eternal life. And John gives tests so you can determine whether you're genuine or not. The test of whether you're a Christian or not. He gives you evidence. And again, this evidence is for you to do introspection, not for you to be making judgments on other people. Okay, so that's the caveat there. And it's important that, uh, that you know what you believe because you do not want to be deceived by every wind of doctrine that comes down the, down the pipe, okay? There's all kinds of things that come at us. You do not want to be the group that's deceived. So test, number one test in review. Do I endeavor to, to obey the commands of God? And we see this in chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. And we don't do this out of a, a must, 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 must legalism like the Jewish people would in trying to keep all the 613 laws or keeping the Ten Commandments rigidly. But we do this because we have a love for our God and we want to do it. It's a big difference between having to and wanting to. Second thing, do I really have a love for the brethren? That was in chapter 2, verse 10. Thirdly, do I hold fast to sound doctrine? Am I teachable? Now hear this, am I teachable? Or am I stubbornly holding on to my old traditions even though the Word of God has demonstrated to me that what I was believing is not true? Am I teachable? That's chapter 2, verse 24 through 26. And do I, do, do I practice righteous living? We're not talking about sinless perfection because that's not happening until our glorified state, until we are with Jesus, getting a new body and that whole thing. But are we in the process of transformation? Are we conforming to the likeness of Christ? Are we changing? Can you look back on your life and say, I'm different now than I was before? That's, that means you're actively involved in the sanctification process, that you're growing, and you can see that, that you are, are changing and you're different than you were in the past. And I would suggest to you that your sanctification, which simply means set apart, I'm in the process where the Holy Spirit is working on me to change me. I am willingly partnering with the Holy Spirit in this process. And I would suggest to you that willingly doing that gives credence to your justification. Remember, justification is Christ's imputed righteousness given to you. Father now looks at you as he looks at his son, pure and holy, the moment that you believe. Now, our last time we got together, we talked about abide and know the truth. And that word abide is the word men know, and it means to dwell, to make your home in. It is written in the present tense. It means continue to abide, continue to abide. Abide in Christ, abide in his word continually. It's not a hit and miss thing. It's something that is our, is our whole life. John 8, 31 says this, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. If you abide in my word, that is a, that is a third class, that, that remains to be seen. You are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Abide and know that you have eternal life. 
And I would suggest to you, if you are abiding in Christ, if you are abiding in his word, then you will know that you have eternal life. It's not going to be a guess. There are non-abiders that are Christians. Non-abiders are kind of in Christ, out of Christ. They're in his word a little bit, not in his word. Take it or leave it. I don't, I don't, I'll just do what I want to do. Those folks have a problem because they never really, really know whether they're in. Never really know if they're in. And it's sad because the family doesn't know whether they're in. They could be or they couldn't be. You just, there's just not enough evidence to really, to really know for sure. Are you truly saved? There's no assurance if you're not abiding, if you're not really living this out. Abide and know that, and you will not be deceived is the final one. And the Holy Spirit will confirm to your spirit whether something you hear is off. You see something strange on TV, and a guy's very charismatic, and he's firing out all this stuff, and it sounds good, sounds good, sounds good, and then boom, something from left field. And you know intuitively, I might not know where that is in the Word, but I know this dude just said something off. And I'm going to check this out. I'm going to be a good Berean and check it out. Abide and know, and finally, that you'll not be ashamed at his coming. Shame is disfigurement or disgrace. And remember, shame was the result of sin. It was a tragic result of sin. People walk in this life with shame. And our shame and our fear and our blame all started with Adam and Eve. We went back to Genesis chapter 3, and we reviewed that when we were going through the teaching. Shame, fear, and blame came, right, came in. And I would suggest to you that our shame, fear, blame eraser is when we abide in Christ. When we live in Christ, we abide in him and in his word. Now this week, John continues telling his readers about God's incredible, amazing, stupendous, keep adding adjectives, love. It's astounding love that he has for us. He has for you, everyone that is a believer. God's incredible love. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time that you've allowed us to gather together on this snowy, cold, slippery road day where these people have come out to hear the word of God. You have a called out people, a people that will go through anything to hear the scriptures. Thank you that you do have a faithful remnant. Speak to us today words of truth, Holy Spirit. Whatever we do not know, teach us in the things that you teach us. Help us to apply. In Jesus' name, amen. God's incredible love. You know, sometimes people try really, really, really hard to love somebody. And this guy wrote this. He says this, I read about a young man who was determined to win the affection of a lady who refused to even talk with him anymore. He decided that the way to her heart was through mail. Now, today it would be text, 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 text. But it was through mail at this time. So he began writing her love letters. He wrote a love letter every day to this lady, six, seven times a week. She got a love letter from him. When she didn't respond, he increased the output. Now, we might call this stalking today, but anyway, increased the output. <laughs> to three notes every 24 hours. In all, he wrote more than 700 letters, and she wound up marrying the postman. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Yes. Hey, how about this one? There's a sign on a church. I think we have it coming up here. Have you ever seen it? Honk if you love Jesus. Text while driving if you want to meet him. <laughs> I thought that was good. Yeah. John MacArthur has this to say, and of course, he's on a serious note, but he says this. The Christian life is best defined as an ongoing relationship of love between the believer and Christ. We do not need to talk about his love for us because that is implicit. But our love for him might be something different. And oftentimes we have our love for him 
couched in, in the way that we view that God should treat us as people. He says, he says this, most people have the idea that the Christian life is about how much God loves me and wants to fulfill my dreams, my desires, my ambitions, my goals, my objectives. And what he wants to do is make something wonderful out of me and lift me and elevate me and fulfill the hopes of my heart. You see the me, 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 me? Yeah, yeah. It's more about God loving me so much that he wants to do all of this than it is about me loving him and serving him. That's a distorted message when it's all about me. Look, at when you serve him, he will bless you. It is an automatic reciprocal. You love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He already loves you, all he's ever going to love you when, you when you say yes to Jesus Christ. But you can experience that love when you are obedient to him and walking with him. God's incredible love. There's some facts that I'd like you to know. Verse 1, God's incredible love, who we are. Who we are, verse 1. Know who you are. Behold what manner of love, agape love, the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Hey, when you think you're not fitting into this world, you are on the right track. If you're fitting in and everything's really cool with the world and you're fitting in perfectly, re-examine re yourself. Re-examine yourself. So, who we are. We are children of God, and I want to tell you we have been justified. We've used that word over and over and over. That is something that happens the instant we say yes to Jesus Christ. We say, yes, we believe you died for our sins, Christ's righteousness is credited to you, the believer. You are in the family of God. You are a child of God. It is important for every believer to know who we are, and this is a big deal that we are a child of God. A big deal. Children of God. What an incredible privilege that we have. In 1 John 2.29, we read this last time. He said this, If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. And that was written in the present tense. Continual, ongoing, practicing righteousness. And then in 3.1, he says this, in light of the truth about, their new, about the new birth, John is prompted to explain that the basis for this new birth is the Father's great love for us. The Father's great love for us. That he has made sinners children of God. Children of God. That word children is the word technon, and it means to beget, to bear, birth a child. And that is the reason in John 3.3, 3, when Jesus was speaking to Nicodemus, he told Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee of Pharisees, he was one of the leaders, he said, you must be born again. Now, why did he say that? Because every human is born into this world with their spirit dead. We are born dead in our trespasses and sin, Ephesians 2.1. We must be born again. We must be born again of the Spirit. Born again of the Spirit. Because we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We have been birthed into the family of God by Christ, and we are adopted into God's family. What a privilege. This, this adoption in Galatians 4.5, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Ephesians 1.5, having predestined us to adoption as sons. Adoption is an incredibly important thing. Adoption is to make, to make a sinner into a real son with, listen, full rights and privileges of a real son. Not second class, 
but equal to the natural born son. Oh, God loves you implicitly. When you say yes to him, when you are declared righteous, you are a child of the living God, and that is a big deal. That is a big deal. Mankind's plight is this. It's particularly significant in the light of where we are as humans in our relationship with with God. Where we are. Mankind's plight is this. Mankind does not want God. There's no one that seeks after God, that no one searches him, no one does good. We know that in Romans 3. All that stuff. None righteous, no, not one. We are distant from God. It takes a miracle of him to change our lives. Mankind does not want the restraints of God. Mankind ignores God, curses God, disobeys God, denies God. But in spite of this, God pours out his love. I don't know if you remember this verse, but, but Romans 5.8 says this. God demonstrated his love for us. How did he demonstrate it? He came here and died for us. He demonstrated. He just didn't speak it. He didn't just say, I love you, and just let you go your way. He demonstrated it. He came here and died for us. He demonstrated his love towards us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And this is amazing considered the state that we're in, that we're standing against God, that we're enemies of God, we're opposing God, we're rebelling against God, we're hostile against God. But yet he lavished his love on us. He lavished it on us. And it says in the text here, he bestowed his love on us. He bestowed his love on us. The word is didomai. Didomai. It means to give, to confer, to make a present, to put something into another's possession. He put love, his love, into your possession. What an amazing thing. Love is a gift. He has given us a love gift which cannot be earned, purchased, and it is priceless. The love of God is poured out on his people. Poured on it. We just need to receive it. We need to walk in it. Now, don't fall into the trap after your salvation of thinking somehow you have to earn Father's love, earn God's love. Because every ounce of love that God has is given to you the moment you believe. If you are God's child, you simply have all of his love all of the time. Isn't that good news? Because we're not lovable very often. Very often. His love for you is not based on your actions. And aren't you thrilled about that? You bet. You bet. He gives us his love. Gives us his love. It's a great love. It's ongoing love. The love which believers have become benefactors is a permanent gift. It is a grace gift, the grace gift of love. John also wrote a gospel. And in John 1.16, he wrote these words. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. From the fullness of his grace, from the fullness of his favor, from the fullness of his love. You know, that is the word palero. We've mentioned this word several times. This isn't just a little itsy-bitsy grace. This is the fullness, the overflowing of his grace. He gives us blessing after blessing. And you know what that is? They ever go to Lake Michigan or ever go to the ocean? It's like the waves washing up upon the shore. Blessing after blessing, hour after hour. God loves us. He pours out his blessing. He pours out his grace. Over and over and over. What an amazing God. In spite of what I am acting like, he still loves me. He still pours his 
pours his grace upon me. It's amazing, amazing love, amazing grace. We know this, that God loves us, but we also know this, that the world does not love us. Do you realize that? Are you experiencing that at all? At all? The, the world does not love us. Does not love us. Think about this. Think about this. The believer in relationship to the world they live in, you are strange and weird. You are a weirdo. And just say thank you for that because we do not fit in here. We're aliens and strangers, as it says in Hebrews. We are just passing through. This world is not our home. We must know that truth. Now, when it talks about the world, it is the world system that is at odds with God, at odds with Christians, those who belong to Christ. Now, why does the world not love us? Because they didn't love Jesus. The world despises Jesus. They rejected Jesus. And if they rejected him, they are bound to reject his children. You can just live knowing that. You're always going to be at odds with this world system. It's a system that is designed to take people away from Christ. Jesus warns us in John 15, 18, If the world hates you, know, know that it hated me before it hated you, and I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. It hates our Jesus, and it's going to hate Jesus' followers. It's just that simple. It's just that simple. So do not be surprised. Do not be surprised when the world finds you strange and weird and don't like you or want your Jesus. Do not be surprised at that. God has to do something in them to change them. Okay? Very important. The majority will not embrace Jesus. Now, how can I make such a bold statement? How do I know this to be true? Because the Bible tells me so. Yes, in Matthew, in, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, which was the verse that I told you about earlier, it's entered by the narrow gate. And again, it is a narrow gate that leads to heaven. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many go in by it. And narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way that leads to life, and there are few who find it. We know that Jesus, we've mentioned this before millions of times, Jesus is the only way to heaven. He's the only way to Father. It is the only door. It is the only path. It is a narrow path, but the path is open to everyone. It does not exclude anyone. It is open to all people, all humans. That's an important thing to know. One man said this, The mystery of the new birth is foolishness to the proud heart, which considers the children of God at very least deluded and even a bit off mentally. Even Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, did not initially grasp the profound truth of the new birth in his nighttime encounter with the master teacher, Jesus. Now, when you think about the world, Please hear this. When you think about the world, remember our war is with a world system controlled by Satan, not the world's people. That's an important distinction. See, people are victims. They're victims. Uh, Hindus are victims. Muslims are victims. The cults are victims. They're victims of Satan's deception that you're okay on the road that you're on. They're victims. Atheists are victims. They are victims. We, We need to have compassion for them. Remember, the world system is a system devoid of Christ, a system controlled by Satan, and it is designed to keep people from Christ. That is the world system. That is the spirit of the age. 
That is what we are combating when we go into the world and give the gospel to people. The spirit of the age. Remember the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age. Keep people away from Christ. Our commander's marching orders are very clear. We are to engage the world with the truth of the gospel. That is our job. Now, we've been through this scripture like 12,000 times, so it'll be 12,001. It's the Great Commission. Engage the world. Tell them about Jesus and his love. Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Our, our commission is very clear. Go. That means engage. It doesn't mean sit. doesn't mean isolate. doesn't mean get into a cave. doesn't mean sequester ourselves in the little, little units apart from the world. We are to impact the world. That means in our job. That means in our families. That means with our friends. That means on the sports teams that we play on. Every venue that we enter into, we are to go and engage. Now, you have to be appropriate. And I will suggest to you that God will open the door for you. You just don't go jamming in on Super Bowl Sunday, knocking on somebody's front door as they're having beers and brats saying, you need Jesus. That isn't going to go. But if someone wants to hear, God will open the door. And remember what they do? You put your foot in, you crack it, and you tell them the truth about Jesus and his love. It has to be appropriate. There's an appropriate time. God makes the appointments. We save no one. God is the Savior. Jesus is the Savior. So, go therefore and make disciples, not converts. Remember, God makes the converts. We're engaged in the process, but he is the one that changes hearts. He is the one that changed your heart. He's the one that took the blinders off. He is the one that did this for you. But our job then is to disciple. Go make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is an outward witness. This is an absolute command of Jesus. If you say that you're a believer and you have not been baptized, then you are, you are actually going against Jesus. It would be a sin. I, I believe that would be a sin. Would, you're going against the decreed will of Jesus Christ. And then we are to teach them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And he says, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I want you to know that's a promise. I am with you always, to his disciples, and to you. To the end of the age, every one of us engaged in this. He is with us personally in this. He is with you. That's good news. You're not hanging out here by yourself. He's with you. He is with you. So our job is to tell them, disciple them. Now, who we are are children of God. We are his children with his amazing love bestowed upon us. That's who we are. Know that. You are valuable. There's lots of times in our life we don't feel very valued. We feel pretty crummy. We made some bad decisions. You might feel like shame just dripping off us. Okay? Give it to Jesus. He's your shame bearer. He's your fear bearer. He's your blame taker. He's the one who'll take all of that away from you. Verse 2, God's incredible love is who we shall be. Here's something to look forward to as a Christian. This is not it. This is like hip, hip, hooray. This is not it. We're moving on from here. Verse 2, beloved. He's talking to us, his beloved, the believers. Now we are children of God. We know that we've technized. We've been born of the Spirit. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, that means when he comes back for us, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And oh, how important and how significant and how amazing this is. 
who we shall be is glorified. Do you know that in your imperfect state right now, you are just on the precipice of being perfect? <laughs> but you're not going to happen here. You've got to leave. It's not going to happen while you're here. This speaks of the third phase or the third aspect of our salvation, and that's glorification. I'm going to elucidate, clarify this in just a second. Glorification is a state of perfection, no longer temptable. Now, I've been asked this question many times, so I'll clarify this for the group. If you've heard this before, bear with me. Oftentimes I'm asked, will there be another rebellion in heaven? Will the angels rebel again? Will the humans rebel again? And I will tell you, no, they will not. How do I know? Because the Bible tells me so. There will be no more rebellion in heaven. And I want to suggest to you that all of God's higher creation, he has given them the ability to choose contrary to him. Contrary choice. The angels have it. Humans have it. Animals don't. His, his higher creation do. The angels and humans can choose opposing, they can oppose their created nature. Mark 8.38 talks about the holy angels who were obedient. Jude 6 talks about the unholy angels who left their abode, left their created order, and now some of them are confined, and we call them demons in that today. But all of God's higher creation, what he does is he tests them. In the angelic realm, there was a test. Lucifer was involved in this. And a third of the angels volitionally, those in the presence of God, decided to side with Lucifer. You talk about a deceiver. You talk about someone, you cannot compete with this one. You don't try to outwit him. You put on the armor of God and you send a defensive war, but you don't try to outwit him. You won't ever do that. You stand in who Christ has made you, a soldier, and go in his strength, not yours. One-third of the angelic Rome chose to go with him, to follow Satan, the adversary. Two-thirds chose to, in conformity to God's will, they stayed in their creative order. They stayed in a, and are confirmed in their holiness. These are called elect angels today. You know that? They will never fall again. They've passed their time of testing. That's 1 Timothy 5.21. In the human realm, Adam and Eve were our representatives. They were mankind's representative. They had a test. Everyone knows about the test. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And lo and behold, what did they do? They ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So what happens is the sin consequence comes on them and is passed on to all of us. They chose contrary to God, and they sinned, and now we live in this mess. But God sent a Savior. God sent his Son to save us from our sins. And those who believe in the Son, those who believe in the Son, those who believe are elect, confirmed in their holiness, confirmed in their holiness. Those who believe and receive Jesus Christ are the elect of God. Now, I want to review something with you. Since we have this opportunity, I want to review the phases of salvation. Now, you have it in your handout. You have it on the overhead here. And I want to suggest to you just a few things. Phase one, we are justified. The moment that you do this, it's always in the past, because if you did it, then it's in the past, okay? And what happened is it affected your spirit. Remember, your spirit is dead, and it's been brought to life. You're called born again. 
And the important thing here is that the penalty of sin is removed. The penalty of sin is death, separation from God forever. That is removed. We are saved, born again, going to heaven because we are justified. But God does not leave us there. Phase two of our salvation is sanctification. Now, there are two phases to sanctification. There is, there is progressive sanctification. That's what we're, what we're working on from, from the time we get saved on. And there's positional sanctification. The moment that you were saved, God set you apart unto himself, and he said, that is my child. For the rest of your life, you're being progressively sanctified. That is in the present. That is happening right now, every day, every day as you go through life. What is it working on? It's working on your soul, your mind, your thoughts, your feelings and emotions. You're being transformed into the image of Christ. Remember Romans 12, too, we're transformed. We're transformed by the renewing of our minds. That's this phase. Now, this takes cooperation with the Holy Spirit. You don't just one day say, okay, I'm going to be sanctified today because I know I can't. No, you can't. You have to have the power of the Spirit of God living within you. Your mind will be transformed, your mind is renewed, and the power of sin is removed. You no longer have to be captive to your flesh, the world system, Satan's maneuvers. You can say no, no to anything that comes your way. Finally, phase three is glorification. This happens future. This happens when your body is rejoined with your soul. This happens at the resurrection, and I believe this happens at the rapture for, the, for believers. We are raptured. We get a new body. The presence of sin is removed. The penalty of sin done away with. The power of sin done away with. And the presence of sin removed forever. Those are the phases of salvation. Keep that little handout. That is very important for you to know. So many people get saved. Get saved and then drift and drift, and they never really know, they never really engage with the Holy Spirit, never really growing, and just kind of drift and slide along in their Christian life and wonder, where's the power in this Christianity? Where's the power in this Christianity? The power in the Christianity is, is as you yield to the Spirit of God. And then you can overcome those deeply ingrained patterns of behavior that have had you stuck for all of your life. You can be delivered from anything through the power of the Spirit of God. It'll never be on your own. It'll be through, it isn't willpower. It's God power working together with you as you yield to him. So that's the three phases of salvation. So glorification is a state of perfection, no longer temptable. John is talking about our glorified state here, which occurs at our resurrection. Resurrection. And I wanted to take the opportunity to talk to you about the Resurrection. So there's another chart here. Another chart here. Now bear with me because this is just follow the one, two, three, four, that whole thing. So phase one of the resurrection was Jesus Christ. He's the first. He was the first fruits. Remember, the first fruits is a guarantee of more to come. Jesus rose from the dead. That is a guarantee that you will be raised from the dead. Not equivocate. No equivocation about this. It will happen. Second phase of the resurrection, a believer's at the rapture. And I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. You can believe what you want on that. But I believe that Jesus is coming back for us. He's going to take us out of this thing, and we're going to go to heaven. That's phase two. Phase three is, are the two witnesses in the middle of the tribulation. 
Now, some people think they're Elijah and Moses. They don't really identify, but they certainly look like those two guys. And they're giving the Antichrist fits. And finally, the Antichrist is able to kill them. They lie in the streets for three days, and they are miraculously raised up to life. That's phase three. Phase four is the resurrection of, of believers that are martyred in the tribulation period. And there's going to be many, many, many. It's going to be the greatest revival ever in the tribulation period, but it'll also be the greatest group of martyrs that has ever existed on earth. They'll give their life believing that I believe in Jesus Christ and stand up against the Antichrist. And finally, the Old Testament saints will be raised at the end of the tribulation period, and that's starting the thousand-year millennium. Now, that's the first resurrection. The second resurrection is for unbelievers. They have one phase. At the end of the thousand-year millennial reign, they are raised up, they stand before the great white throne judgment, and they are judged. The books are opened, and they'll see that their, books are, their names are not written in the, in the book of life, and they will be cast into the lake of fire forever. They'll join Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet there. What a tragedy. Because no one needs to go there. That place was created for the devil and his angels. God has made a way for humans to not go there. Please tell people the life-saving story of Jesus. Two resurrections. So that was just for your edification. Back to 1 John. Back to 1 John. Now, when he is revealed, that's talking about when he comes back for us, I believe at the rapture of the church, we shall be like him. We shall be changed. And I want to suggest to you something. We, whenever you do a funeral, this is a very popular uh, funeral verse, but it's 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and it's popular for a reason, because it tells us that there's a hope in the future. We're going to be new people. We're going to have a new body. Hear what, hear what Paul says. Behold, I tell you a mystery. Remember, whenever you see the mystery in the New Testament, it is something not revealed in the Old Testament, but is revealed in the New Testament. Okay, that's what a mystery is. We shall not all sleep, or we shall not all die. He's talking about the rapture here. You know, the Old Testament knew about, uh, about a resurrection. This is actually, I believe, talking about the rapture of the church. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. And I can just, that would be a hip, hip, hooray word, changed, okay? For this corruptible, this thing here, must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on more immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? Or Hades, where is your victory? Look at death, it'll be permanently eradicated and done away with when we are glorified, when we are with our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We shall be like him. We shall be changed. And then finally, we shall see him as he is. And I want to suggest to you that John saw Jesus as he was in Revelation chapter 1. And I want to remind you that the, the inner circle of Peter, James, and John were on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus stripped away his outer side and glory came through. And they saw that. And John had to remember that. But John is seeing something even more spectacular here 
in Revelation chapter 1, when he sees the glorified, fully glorified Jesus looking just like God the Father, as described in Ezekiel chapter 126. Here are the words. In the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. Verse 14, his head and his hair were white like wool, pure, as white as snow, his eyes like a flame of fire, his feet like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, absolute purity. And his voice, the sound of many waters, authority. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was like the sun shining. Can you imagine this? In its strength. And when and John says it, when I saw him, I fell at his feet, though dead. Mount of Transfiguration, with Jesus for three and a half years. Knew Jesus intimately. Saw the resurrected Jesus for 40 days when he made his appearances after he was after he was resurrected. But oh, this is the glorified Jesus. This is the God Jesus that he sees. Watch the tenderness of Jesus. But he laid his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. Isn't that what the shepherd does to his sheep all the time? Do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I'm alive forevermore. Amen. Oh, that's the glorified Jesus. That When we see him, we will be like him. That's an amazing thing, amazing thing. Who we shall be perfect, all because of Jesus. And I'll tell you, that's a praise. That is a thank you, Lord. Thank you that we have this to look forward to. And finally, verse 3, God's incredible love and who we should be while we are here. Who we should be while we are here. Verse 3, and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Who we should be would be sanctified and growing. Now, I have a question for you. How big is your God? How big is your God? A little bitty God, a little just-in-case God, or do you have a God that can do anything? That's our God, okay? Let me just give you a little, little help there. That, that is our God. He's big enough to make you who you should be. Now, in view of the return of Jesus Christ, we should keep our lives clean. Would you agree with that? He's coming for us. It will be involved in the sanctification process, growing, being transformed, all that stuff. So, so how big is your God? And I would suggest to you this. He is big enough to get rid of all the crud in your life. Every single stronghold in your life that has weighed you down, he is big enough to get rid of that. He's big enough to get rid of anything that is dragging you back to the world, the flesh, that sort of thing. Anything that is causing you to drift, he is big enough to take care of that. How do I know that? Because Philippians chapter 1-6 says this, He who began a good work in you were carried on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He's going to get you home safely. But Hebrews 12-1 also says this, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, Just so you know, those witnesses would be those who have been faith, who walked by faith and died by faith and that sort of thing. Let us lay aside every weight. You know what that weight is? It's the bulging load that is on you during your life. Let us lay it aside. You lay it aside. And the sin which so easily ensnares us or traps us. And let us run with endurance. And that is a present tense. Keep running, keep running, keep running, keep running with endurance. The race that is set before you. 
How do you do that? How do you keep doing that? Only this way, looking on to Jesus. Jesus is a big God. Jesus is a big God. He is a Savior that can get you through anything. He can give you the endurance. He is the author and finisher of our faith. What does that mean? He began it. He will finish it. Who for the joy, listen, to the, the joy set before him. The cross wasn't a picnic, but what it produced gave him joy. All of us with the potential to live with him forever by simply saying yes to the Son. For the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down on the right hand of the throne of God. When Jesus said, Tetelestai, it is finished, the redemptive price was paid, our salvation was secured. All those who believe in him. In view of God's incredible love and sacrifice, what should we be while here? Well, we should accomplish the Father's will. Accomplish the Father's will. His will for all believers, hear this, is to be purified. Every one of us, that's his will. Not to stay the same, but to be purified. The word is hagnizo, and it means consecrated, dedicated by a sacrifice. What I think it, it, it means you're all out for God. Hold nothing back. 1 John 2.6 says, walk as he walked. Live as he lived. Emulate Jesus. Not Michael Jordan, not Willie Mays in my, my era, or, or Mickey Mantle or somebody like that. We want to emulate our Savior. We want to be like him. It's written, that purified is written in the pre present tense, and again, it's ongoing, continuously pure. It's a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle. Again, it's not sinless perfection. We can never get there. But you're engaged. You're engaged with the Holy Spirit, changing, being transformed. Purified. Now note this. Please hear this. Who purifies? It's himself. What does it say? Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself. Why is he saying that? Because the Spirit of God is resonant within. We are partnering with the Spirit of God. He gives us the strength. Remember Barnhouse, what did he say? He's the rod of iron up our spine allows us to stand against everything that comes against us in this world. The Holy Spirit's an amazing power. He is God, and he lives in you. And he gives you the ability to do this. It's astounding. It's astounding. But, he, but the, the onus is on us because we have access to the way. We have access to the way. It's that we can't do it, but we do it through his power, through his strength. And remember this, God saves you, he justifies you, but sanctification is you cooperating with the Holy Spirit as you are transformed, as your mind is transformed, as you think differently. Think differently. Now, what does this look like? What does this look like? Let us allow the psalmist to help us. Psalm 24, verses 3 through 5. Gives us a little clue, at least what the Old Testament view of this would have looked like. Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? That means who can be in heaven? Who can be where God is? Or who can stand in his holy presence? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, and just put a little dash there, Jesus. Because he makes us clean. Who has not lifted his soul to an idol nor sworn deceitfully, Jesus. He shall receive blessings from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. And it is the imputed righteousness of Christ that is given to every believer that receives Jesus as Savior. 
What a deal. Psalm 15, 1 through 3 is its cousin. Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? He who walks uprightly and works righteousness. So this is because Jesus Christ has changed your life. Speaks the truth in his heart, does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to a neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against a friend. Oh, this is a picture of us being able to walk in newness of life. That's what it looks like. Who we should be, folks, we should be big God people, knowing that God can get rid of any crud in our life. A test of how big your God is, a proof that we love him. Do we have an inkling, an understanding of the, just the rudimentary thoughts of his amazing love for us? His amazing love for us. Are we stirred to live pure lives because of his incredible love? And remember this, we have a big God, and a big God gives you a big hope. A big hope. And everyone who has this hope that you're going to be glorified purifies himself. He is a big God with a big hope. Who should we be more and more like Jesus while we're here? And you know what? It's all in preparation for there. Hey, you're in school. Oma graduated. Oma graduated. We're waiting to graduate. We're just taking tests. How are you doing on the test? We'll be getting some A's and not all E's. You know, that's that whole thing. This is our testing time. This is it. This isn't how much money you can make, how popular you can be, how, how much control you have of other people. This is preparation for the Christian engaged in the process of sanctification. This is prep for heaven. This is prep for heaven. Conclusion, God's incredible love. God's incredible love is this, who we are. Who, who are we? We're children. Who we shall be. We're going to be like him. Who we should be set apart unto him. Different because we've been coming in contact with Jesus Christ. Now, thinking about God's incredible love, ponder these words of A.W. Tozer. Let him speak to your heart. He says this, the words God is love mean that love is an essential attribute of God. Love is something true of God, but it is not God. It expresses the way God is in his unitary, in his unitary being, as do the words holiness, justice, faithfulness, and truth. Because God is immutable, unchangeable, he always acts like himself. Isn't that nice? You can always rely on God to act like God. Doesn't have fits, doesn't have a temper tantrum, isn't all vacillating in his emotions. Stable. He always acts like himself. Because he is a unity, he never suspends one of his attributes in order to exercise the other. They're all fully engaged. From God's own known attributes, we may learn much about his love. We can know, for instance, that because God is self-existent, his love has no beginning. Because he is eternal, his love has no end. Because he is infinite, it has no limit. Because he is holy, it is the quintessence of all spotless purity. Because he is immense, his love is incomprehensibly vast, bottomless, shoreless sea, before which we kneel in joyful silence, from which the loftiest eloquence retreats, confused and abashed. God's amazing, astounding love for us. If you stretch your heart towards heaven, you'll sense the shining love of God. You want to be encouraged to look up, to have hope. We have a great God, a big God, a God of hope.
that can help us through anything. He loves you immensely. And somehow we want to grasp, somehow as we look up, somehow as our hearts burst forward towards him, we want to experience his amazing, stupendous love for his children. God's incredible love in you. That is the truth. Isn't that amazing? His incredible love in you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time that you've given us your word. And thank you, Lord, for this teaching. And I just pray, Lord, that somehow, some way, we have been able to grasp just a, just a thumbnail touch of the amazing love that you have for us. That you are a big God and you are big enough to deliver us from anything because you love us. If we walk in concert with you and move forward, not backwards, not stationary, move forwards towards you, oh, we can experience the hope of your amazing love just flowing over us, giving us victory after victory after victory in those things that have held us captive. Lord, we have been set free. Your love has set us free. Your amazing grace has set us free. Your mercy that is just so amazing. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your chesed, your loving kindness that is, just blows our minds, Lord. Thank you. And now, Father, do your work in each heart. Holy Spirit, help each person here to know how valuable they are to you and that you love them implicitly. That's a great love, Lord. Thank you so much for showing us this today. In Jesus' name, amen.